This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. This seminar discusses the Nansen Initiative on Disaster-Induced Cross-Border Displacement and examines how, why and when people may move in response to disasters and the impacts of climate change and what legal and policy frameworks are needed to support such movement. Speakers include Professor Walter Kerlin, Envoy of the Chairmanship of the Nansen Initiative and Professor of Law at the University of Bern, Bruce Burson, Independent Expert and Member of the Nansen Initiative Consultative Committee, and Professor Jane McAdam, Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law and a member of the Nansen Initiative Consultative Committee. As a result of which the number of people moving or likely to move in the future in the context of disasters and climate change is increasing. The other reason that the topic of today's seminar is a new one is the increased attention that it is receiving at the international level. It's less than 10 years since climate-related movement appeared on the international agenda um, due to the work of bodies such as the United Nations, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, as well as experts and advocates in the field, not least of whom are our three speakers today. Protecting people who move in the context of disasters and climate change is complex and it involves numerous challenges at the conceptual, legal and practical levels. Conceptually, as Jane McAdam and many others have pointed out, identifying climate as a cause of movement in any given situation is often difficult. For instance, while prolonged lack of rain or indeed too much rain is clearly a climate issue, whether or not this leads to a disaster, whether those affected are forced to move and if so, where to, will depend on a wide range of other factors including vulnerability or resilience of the populations affected and the capacity of their governments to respond. It's no accident, for example, that in 2011 the widespread drought in the Horn of Africa led to famine and mass exodus of populations in Somalia, while, for example, in neighbouring Kenya, the effects of the same drought were much less severe. For those charged with developing law and policy responses um, to displacement in the context of disasters and climate change, um, there are also conceptual difficulties, in particular distinguishing between forced and voluntary movement. For example, when does the economic migrant who is moving in search of better job opportunities or for better or more fertile soil to grow his or her crops become displaced, forced to flee for his or her life? From an international law perspective, people who are displaced for climate-related reasons rarely benefit from existing protection regimes. They rarely fall within the scope of international refugee protection instruments, complementary or subsidiary protection regimes, which are based on broader human rights law, um, are perhaps of slightly more use, but still limited. This has led to what many describe as a protection gap under international law for people displaced for climate-related reasons. And it is in response to this protection gap that in 2012, the governments of Switzerland and Norway launched the Nansen Initiative, a state-led, bottom-up, consultative process which has as its stated objective the development of a protection agenda aimed at addressing the needs of people displaced across international borders by natural hazards, including the effects of climate change. The Nansen Initiative's consultative process consists of five regional or sub-regional consultations in the Pacific, Central America, the Horn of Africa, South Asia and Southeast Asia, culminating in a global consultative meeting which is scheduled for 2015. Though the global meeting is yet to take place, I think it is fair to say that the Nansen Initiative has already achieved a great deal in putting the protection needs of persons displaced in the context of disaster and climate change on the table. All three of our speakers today are key participants in the Nansen Initiative's consultative process and their combined experience on issues relating to disasters, climate change and displacement is extensive to say the least. Professor Walter Kalin is a Professor of Constitutional and International Law at the University of Bern and Envoy of the Chairmanship of the Nansen Initiative. Walter is thus tasked with representing the Nansen Initiative throughout the consultative process as well as providing strategic guidance and input. Walter's previous roles include Member of the UN Human Rights Committee, Representative of the UN Secretary General on the Human Rights of Internally <coughs> Displaced Persons, and Special Rapporteur of the UN Human Rights Commission on the Situation of Human Rights in Iraqi-Occupied Kuwait. Bruce Burson has worked in immigration law in the UK and New Zealand. 
He is a current member of the New Zealand Immigration Protection Tribunal and a member of the Nansen Initiatives Consultative Committee. Bruce is also the editor of a book on climate change and migration in the South Pacific entitled Climate Change and Migration in South Pacific Perspectives, which looks at conceptual challenges and policy responses to climate-related movement. Professor Jane McAdam is Scientia Professor of Law and the Director of the Andrew and Renata Caldwell Centre for International Refugee Law here at the University of New South Wales. Jane is an acknowledged authority on climate change, displacement and international law, having published numerous articles and books on this issue. In addition to being a member of the Nansen Initiatives Consultative Committee, Jane is co-rapporteur of the International Law Association Committee on International Law and Sea Level Rise, of which Walter and Bruce are also members. Together, all three of our speakers today are spearheading the committee's work on mobility-related issues. So each of the speakers at today's seminar will speak for a little under 15 minutes, um, following which we'll have some time for questions. So I would now like to invite Walter Palin to begin the seminar. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, for your kind introductory words. Uh, in a way, I don't have anything to add. You already <laughs> perfectly well explained uh, what the Nansen Initiative uh, is uh, about. Uh, nevertheless, I will say a few additional words and then focus on uh, one of uh, the uh, key issues, uh, namely how to determine where someone is displaced as opposed to uh, moving uh, voluntarily. Somalia was already uh, mentioned uh, throughout 2010-2011. Uh, uh, 290,000 people arriving in Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti, some uh, making the way, uh, crossing over to uh, Yemen. And governments confronted with the question, how to deal with these people? The answer was, we grant them kind of refugee status, meaning we house them in the uh, already existing uh, refugee camps, Tadab, etc. Haiti, not climate-related, earthquake, huge number of internally displaced persons. What is less known is that uh, more than 200,000 entered the neighboring Dominican Republic. Many went to countries such as Mexico, uh, Brazil, Ecuador, but also Canada. The U.S. Uh, granted uh, temporary protection status to 200,000 uh, Haitians. That's the U.S. concept of temporary protection, meaning people supposed to return to their country uh, have not uh, to go. Uh, here in the region, uh, not the big numbers, but another storm surge and another village is come. In legal terms, uh, these people are all protected, of course, by international human rights law. To the extent that they are internally displaced, and that a large majority is internally displaced, um, they are covered by documents such as the UN Guiding Principles on Internal Displacement in Africa, the Kampala Convention on Internal Displacement, uh, domestic uh, laws. But when it comes to cross-border movements, and I just gave you uh, two examples, then of course we do have the big legal gap. These people are not refugees in the sense of the 1951 Refugee Convention. Lots of questions are open. When uh, should these people be admitted? Have they the right to stay? When can they uh, be returned back to the country of origin? We do not have agreed um, criteria. That's particularly uh, true for slow onset uh, disasters. But operational responses are also weak in the context of cross-border movements, uh, weak structures, unclear mandates. UNHCR is in charge within the UN cluster system for the protection cluster when you're talking about armed conflict, but it's on an ad hoc basis uh, when we are turning uh, to disasters what the role of UNHCR uh, is, and lots of funding gaps, of course. The Nansen Initiative uh, goes uh, back uh, to the climate change negotiations. In uh, 2010, the uh, climate change negotiators uh, discussing uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change 
adopted what is called the Cancun Adaptation Framework. They recognized uh, that displacement, voluntary migration, and planned relocation are part of the challenge to adapt to climate change. This actually goes back to an initiative uh, coming out uh, uh, of the humanitarian uh, community, High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, uh, Guterres, but also the director of IOM, at that time myself, in the uh, IDP mandate, we did a lot of lobbying in the uh, run-up uh, to these uh, climate change uh, negotiations. 2011, 60 years of the 1951 Refugee Convention, the High Commissioner for Refugees wanted to get a kind of a mandate to discuss the issue with states. The answer was very negative. States don't want to have it discussed within UNHCR, XCOM. Many said even we don't want to have it discussed within the UN. It's premature. It's not the right uh, place to do it. We need uh, better preparation. And it was in this context that Norway and Switzerland stood up end of 2011 ministerial meeting in Geneva at UNHCR and uh, said, okay, we are going to facilitate a process outside the UN with interested states. We were joined quickly by a um, group of states, including Australia, uh, who form uh, the steering uh, group. The goal is not to draft any kind of convention, not uh, new guiding principles, it's really to try to build up consensus, bottom-up, meaning from the regions that are particularly affected, on what is the situation, what are the dynamics, what are good practices that exist, what are, however, also the key gaps, the big challenges, what needs to be done. The methodology, as you have heard, is a series of regional consultations. We were in the Pacific uh, May last year. We were in um, Central America end of last year. This year, we've covered the Horn of Africa, Southeast Asia, just as three weeks ago. And we have another consultation in South Asia beginning of next year. This helps to also put together the available knowledge research that was done to kind of presented in a consolidated uh, way through the lens of um, displacement, other kinds of population movements in the context of disasters. And as you, heard, as you have heard, this will lead up to a global dialogue where we hope uh, to uh, come out with this document we call a protection agenda. Now, one of the challenges we're grappling with is the question. When can we talk about displacement? How can we distinguish people displaced across borders from people migrating for good reasons, but still in a situation where the element of voluntariness is preponderant? Of course, these people are not refugees in the sense of international refugee law, because there's no element of persecution. And in the absence of an element of persecution, it's difficult to justify, as for those among you who are familiar with refugee law, to justify what we call substitute international protection. The international community stepping in where you no longer can get protection from your own government. In disaster situations, governments usually, there might be exceptions, are not turning against their own people. Some have said, and one document has been uh, developed here in uh, Australia, the so-called uh, Peninsula Principles on Climate Change-Induced uh, Internal Displacement, have tried to link these uh, <coughs> issues to the causes. Whoever is forced to move because of climate change will be recognized as however you want to call these people, but as basically displaced. The problem is, scientists tell us it's almost impossible to link a specific natural hazard, a specific event, a specific typhoon or hurricane, 
to global warming. We know about the overall trends, but there always have been typhoons and flooding and landslides caused by rain. To establish that link is impossible. Second, multi-causality. There are some clear cat cases, uh, but particularly when we're talking about Sloan's and disasters, it's a multitude of causes that make people move. I visited Kiribati uh, last year. You land in Tarawa, very romantic for someone coming from Europe. And then a closer look, and it's basically a big slum. It's totally overcrowded. It's development, lack of development. But it's also environmental changes. Because the overcrowding has to do with the fact that people have to move from outer islands that have become inhabitable. And the food uh, resource base is shrinking. And it's more and more difficult for people. And then also, how can these causes, climate change, how can we justify that these people are admitted to other countries? In the case of persecution, it's clear. It's too dangerous. But simply the fact that you have move, to move because of climate change does not mean that you are entitled to cross borders if there is still space left within the country, and that's usually today uh, normally the case. I also think, we also think that to push that idea of climate refugees, climate-induced displacement really does not serve the interests of those affected. Because the burden of proof is so huge, so impossible to fulfill, that uh, it's not the way to go. So, what's the way to go? We don't have the answer yet, but we have some interesting ideas and input. In the Somali context, when we had our consultation in uh, the Horn of Africa, and we asked why were these people granted refugee status under the African uh, Refugee Convention, the answer was, well, uh, for pragmatic reasons, but not only. It was the right thing to do. Because the African Convention speaks about people who have to seek refuge outside the country of origin owing to events seriously disturbing public order. And the famine certainly is seriously disturbing public order. What came out of this intergovernmental consultation, it was interesting to see that government representatives widely agreed with that. It's a combination of factors. First, life-threatening situation, that's a famine. Second, no or no adequate response by domestic authorities, which of course was the case in Somalia uh, because of uh, the conflict. Lack of humanitarian access. These people had to go abroad because food aid could not be brought to them. Why was it not possible to bring uh, sufficient food aid to them? Because of the context of insecurity and conflict. They felt where these criteria are in place, in other situations, regardless, uh, outside of, of the Somali context, the African Convention should apply. Not on the basis of persecution, but particularly because of the last two elements. No humanitarian <coughs> access, not because of nature, but because of how human beings uh, behave, how, uh, they um, deal with the situation. A second interesting approach is coming uh, from this region, a decision by the Immigration and Protection Tribunal in New Zealand, AEF um, from Kiribati, decision 2013. The member of uh, the tribunal uh, is sitting at this table. He wrote uh, this uh, very, very good uh, decision. What he said is, right to life is an entry point. States have a duty under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights to protect the life of people. This means they have to take positive action. If someone can show that they are escaping a life-threatening situation or that their life would be threatened when returned back to that country, and they can show that the government is not doing 
what is supposed and obliged to do, then protection has to be granted. In the uh, specific case, he concluded that um, the Kiribati government is trying to take measures, and in particular, <coughs> the situation of these people was difficult, but not difficult enough. The risk was not imminent. I conclude. The approach to distinguish those who move voluntarily and uh, from those who have to move, who are forced to move, has to look not so much at why people left, but rather at whether people can be returned to the country of origin. And there might be different obstacles why people cannot be returned. It simply might not be feasible. That's usually for limited periods of time, uh, because um, airports are closed, roads uh, are uh, destroyed, or because the government simply says, we are so overwhelmed, we can't take back these people. It can be a legal obstacle. People must not be returned if international human rights law would prohibit that. The right to life, as outlined a moment ago. But also the provision of inhuman treatment. The European Court on Human Rights, in the Somali case, it had nothing to do with uh, the drought, but with conflict said, you can't return the UK, these people, basically because there's no real chance for survival there. Not because they could escape the conflict, but the humanitarian situation was so serious, no humanitarian um, assistance that was adequate, and chaotic circumstances in the Aftoye corridor at that time, it would amount to inhuman treatment to send them back. These are rare cases too, as we have seen, but in some disaster situations, they really might occur. And actually, uh, finally, humanitarian obstacles. It might be that we come to the conclusion, even though legally they are not entitled, from a humanitarian perspective, we cannot really expect people to move back. That's an entry point. It needs to be developed at domestic levels. Some countries do have domestic law along these lines, Scandinavia, at regional levels. I think it will take a long time to have something at the global level. Thank you. Um, all right, well, thank you for the introduction, uh, Tamara. Um, I'm here to talk about not the, sort of the legal side of what I do, but my work uh, for the initiative and uh, to present some of the work of the initiative in the context of uh, migration. Um, my presentation will have two parts. Firstly, reinforce some of the messages that have already been uh, given to you about migration as a phenomenon within the context of uh, natural disasters and climate change, and then to give some uh, observations on points that have been reinforced or emerged through the work of the initiative <coughs> excuse me, in the various sub-regional consultations or in meetings to which uh, Walter referred. I mean, because the key message um, that I would wish to convey in this setting is that Migration as a means of adapting to anticipated impacts of natural disasters and changes in the environment is a reality. Um, yes, there are challenges uh, ahead, uh, but in my view, we already have a range of policy options and policy processes which can be leveraged or themselves adapted to meet these challenges. So quickly about migration as a phenomenon, we've already uh, touched upon some of these things. We've heard about the lack of monocausality, very rarely are environmental factors the determining factor driving migration choices and uh, migration generally understood to be a complex phenomenon and, and the work initiative is finding just how much more environmental factors can add another layer of complexity uh, to that uh, decision to move and environmental factors will uh, interact with factors at an individual, household, community and indeed political level to determine not only who moves where and when but also importantly we're finding out who stays and this is an issue when we talk about migration into both ends of the telescope, who goes and who stays, that's one of the policy issues uh, I think that have emerged uh, being on the table. 
Um, what you touched on this in terms of how are we conceptualizing a mig uh, migration work of the initiative, it's largely seen as a voluntary form of population movement. Uh, it can be contrasted with displacement, which is conceptualized as a more forced form of movement. But of course, there's no bright line between the two. Uh, it, these forms of mobility exist on a spectrum. And eminent uh, demographer Graham Hugo, who I uh, spoke yesterday at the conference, I think, has eloquently captured it. I think the book that you may have been writing. It's a, it, in between, there's this large gray area where elements of choice and coercion mingle. So it's quite impossible in, in most cases to sort of lump uh, uh, movement as being wholly voluntary or wholly forced. So in terms of the lexicon that I personally use, I use this term voluntary adaptive migration. And to me, it describes this phenomenon where a person exercises choice to move abroad to escape to or adapt to the worst impacts of anticipated natural disasters or the future negative impacts of climate change. And in terms of thinking about the policy responses that may be required to deal with this issue uh, in the future, it's important to understand that voluntary adaptive migration is not just a unidirectional movement abroad to seek permanent residence. Uh, in the context of natural disasters and climate change, other forms of movement, such as a, uh, a voluntary adaptive mi migration, can be temporary, circular, or even seasonal in nature. Uh, and I think this is uh, important to understand from a policy development perspective. Um, moving on to some of the key points and observations, uh, again, just to reinforce the point that in every subject of consultation, uh, people have made the point, people have been doing this, have been doing it for a long time in our region, people have always moved in environmental stresses, but this is nothing new. And moreover, people are moving across, uh, some of them large numbers, uh, international borders, in response to those stresses in combination with other factors to a greater or lesser degree. The numbers can be quite big. Walter's told you about the numbers in terms of the uh, drought in Somalia, but at the CSO meeting in Nairobi was told that annually, every year, 35 to 50,000 uh, Kenyan pastors move into Uganda. Uh, Transhumanism is also an important feature in communities in Western Africa and generates movements between Togo, uh, Niger, and Mali, uh, we are told. And the point here is that movement across natural uh, international borders pastoral southern communities can be a deeply embedded cultural norm. It's a way of life. Um, and this is one of the key messages that I think the initiative has helped to reinforce to states through its process. I think they're finally getting this narrative that this isn't something new. Um, it's something that is in fact reasonably common in some settings and so as a common uh, phenomenon in these settings it's the proper place of uh, the proper subject of informed policy. And, Maybe being optimistic, but I sense that states through the working initiative beginning to be sensitised to this reality. Um, another point that's emerging, I think, reasonably clearly, is that uh, adaptive migration or movement across international borders in response to uh, natural disasters tends to follow pre-existing patterns, and uh, people tend to move along existing and established uh, networks towards established diaspora communities. That was certainly the case in the Haitian example, where a lot of movement across the border in response to the uh, unrest in Haiti, the Duvalier regime moving across the border into the Dominican Republic for many years, so people followed well established networks and patterns, but there are non-linear responses, new pathways opened up at the time into some South American states, as we've seen in Canada and the US facilitated entry under certain policy settings to expedite applications into, I think it was Canada, uh, from uh, family members of people who were being established in Canada. So, uh, it can lead to sort of uh, changes in the scale uh, as well as the pattern in some settings. But given this reality that people would tend to move, um, at least look to move initially along established networks to established diaspora communities, means crucially important from a policy perspective. We're thinking about migration in the context of natural disasters and climate change, not to overlook the role of diaspora communities. They're incredibly important in the migration equation generally and in more so here. Uh, a study was done by the Ministry of Pacific Island Affairs 10 or 12 years ago now, I guess. Not looking at migration in the context of climate change, but just migration generally into New Zealand Pacific Island families. And made the point that for these communities that are deeply embedded cultural uh, uh, imperative to host, if you've come to New Zealand in the 50s and the 60s, first generation migrant from your village, you have an obligation to host and support people who are coming after you, and what the study was finding was that this was leading to uh, uh, poverty in some of these households. They would move, the whole family would have a two or three bedroom state house, families would come in, put the whole family in one bedroom, the migrating family would 
So it's leading to overcrowding, all the sort of outcomes that would come with that. So it's important when we're thinking about the role of policy, dealing with the challenges that we don't overlook the diaspora community. Um, there's lots of points that are emerging here. The gender dimension to migration needs to be accounted for. But what I thought of, rather than deal with these now, I'm happy to take questions on them, but to come on to the um, issues around policy and sort of policy uh, things that may be needed. I mean, what has emerged has been fundamental to um, this particular uh, aspect of uh, population movement that gives us in climate change. Is that policy dialogue and coordination between states uh, will be essential to meet the migration challenges. Um, there are examples of good practice out there, and, and one of the work of the initiative is to, to highlight those good practices and show other states there are things that can be done. We've heard about the movements between Togo, uh, Niger, and Mali. This has led to conflict between migrating and host states, uh, uh, competition for scarce grazing and scarce water resources. Sometimes the, the pattern changes, they have to move to areas where they hadn't moved previously because of uh, increasingly more severe conditions and forcing them into new areas, and this has led to conflict. And so the governments of Togo, Niger, and Mali have uh, adopted two decrees concerning the regulation of pastures in the context of this culturally embedded um, uh, transhumanism, so as to reduce conflicts. And also stuff going on at the community level, and uh, some of the, if you look at Walter's uh, chart, I mean, the process is trying to generate with some of the knowledge that's been generated in the migration context that there are good practices out there that can be replicated. Very importantly, when we're talking about the role of uh, migration and migration policy and meeting these challenges, it's very important to reconceive or, 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 or emphasize the role of uh, migration in promoting resilience to natural hazards through facilitating temporary and circular migration. Uh, remittances generated uh, from these forms of migration can be used to promote in situ habitation and increase resilience of at-risk households and communities in the country of origin to future uh, events and stresses. And so therefore well-constructed policy interventions in the migration domain can allow people to remain in their homes for longer, which is overwhelmingly their choice of sort of what they want to do and prevent future displacement. Uh, states do have many of the policy tools in their, in, in their uh, belts at the moment. Uh, a colleague and I did some research for the Secretariat on the situation in the Pacific and uh, we were given a highly textured uh, mobility landscape. Um, there's clusters of, of states centered around a former uh, colonial or trustee uh, state of these mobility hub. And so what this was doing was allowing for privileged rights of entry and stay and establishment to members of the uh, citizens of those cluster states in, into the hub, privileged, privileged access to uh, the hub state labor market for about two minutes of the very quick. And so this, there was some evidence, anecdotal evidence, that money that was being used was in part being captured to make more durable homes and make things communities more resilient. However, only a small percentage of the uh, community are captured by this. And very quickly, um, we will need a um, global portfolio of policy responses at a bilateral or regional level, ideally aligned with a global political framework for meaningful emission reductions uh, post-Kyoto. But there are regional, even sub-regional level arrangements existing, and these are critical sites for policy development. Uh, many regions affected by natural disasters and the adverse impacts of climate change with existing regional freedom of movement arrangements, which will be crucial in promoting uh, adaptive migration. We have the ECOWAS Freedom of Movement Protocol uh, at sub-regional level. We have four borders agreements in Latin America, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, the East African Community Freedom of Movement Protocols. At a base level, these allow for freedom of movement uh, between these uh, participating states and thus at a base level enhanced mobility options and a base uh, increase in capacity for migration. But there's huge problems. The ECOWAS regime is not fully implemented, only the entry aspect has been fully ratified by many states. Other issues exist around uh, duration of stay and access to labour markets. Often if you have a right of entry, it's going to be time bound. Quite frankly, the place you came from may not be fit for human habitation at the time will your right under that regime expires. You may get six months, but the place may not be fully habitable, may not be reconstituted. The state, as in the Philippines, may have declared where you were. You, know, you can't go back there anymore, and so it's physical and possible to return. So the point here is, the critical point is that we have many regionally situated policy frameworks and processes to work with. 
but they may need to be recalibrated in structural impediments to full implementation address if there to be uh, better leverage to promote adaptive migration in the context of natural disasters and climate change. So I think time's up. <laughs> <laughs> well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to bring um, our speakers together today to address you about this topic. And as Walter showed in one of his early slides, the UN Framework uh, Convention on Climate Change, uh, part one of the agreements uh, that comes under that, mentions displacement, migration and planned relocation as strategies that governments might want to consider. And the focus of my talk is on that third element, planned relocations. In fact, over the, the past probably six or seven years, a lot of research has started to converge on the first two topics that, that were being discussed, but actually the planned relocation side has been fairly, um, you know, there haven't been a lot of, of work done on that. But in the last couple of years, it's become one of the, the focal points. Relocation describes the act of moving groups of people from one location to another when it's no longer feasible for them to remain at home. Such relocation can be either voluntary or it can be forced. It can be large scale or it can be small scale. Unlike evacuations though, planned relocations are generally intended to be permanent. And for the past 50 years or so, most planned relocations that we've seen have been within countries and have been in response to large scale development projects. Best practice relocation also involves a process of what we call resettlement. That is, a process that helps the groups who've moved to replace their housing, livelihoods, assets, land, access to resources, and so on, so that they can maintain their communities and enhance, or at the very least, restore uh, their living standards. In the context of the Nansen Initiative, which of course is focusing on cross-border movement, planned relocation may be relevant in three contexts. The first of these is as a preventative measure within the country of origin to move groups of people out of harm's way in areas where we think will become um, perhaps uninhabitable because of slower onset processes, so as to reduce the risk of future cross-border displacement. So firstly, it can be preventative strategy. Secondly, planned relocation can be a durable solution within the country of origin so that people who have been displaced can uh, go back and can be rehoused in a safer part of the country. And the third way it can be used is as a durable solution in another country. So where we relocate groups from one country to another um, in the extreme case where the, uh, their habitat, large parts of their country, or perhaps the whole country, can no longer support a population. And of course, I think that's probably the thing we, we tend to think of in our own region uh, when we think of small island states. There are, of course, perennial discussions about relocating whole Pacific Island communities to other countries because of the impacts of climate change and natural disasters. From time to time, the governments of countries like Tuvalu and Kiribati have indicated their support for such a plan, but this certainly is not their present position. The relocation of whole island communities to other countries is generally assumed to be a novel, futuristic idea. However, from the 1930s onwards, the colonial government of the Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony, which is now Tuvalu and Kiribati, that, that colonial government sought to respond to land scarcity and resource shortages by searching for land within other Pacific islands to which groups could move. There were in fact hundreds of internal relocations. There were three cross-border community relocations. 
And there were three mooted cross-border relocations, which ultimately didn't eventuate. The research I've been doing on these movements is intended to look at the very rich lessons that can be instructive for present discussions so that we don't end up creating policy in a, some kind of you know, vacuum, but we can in fact learn lessons from what's gone before. Nearly 70 years ago, two Pacific Island communities were relocated to new, new homes elsewhere in the Pacific to, to different countries. So the first one was in December 1945, when the people of the island of Banaba, also known as Ocean Island, which is in present-day Kiribati, were moved to Rambi Island in Fiji. The reason why they were moved was so that the British Phosphate Commissioners, which was a joint enterprise by the UK, New Zealand and Australia, could basically mine that island to pieces. Two years later, in October 1947, part of the population of an island in Tuvalu bought and settled another island in Fiji, which is actually just kilometres away from Rambi, where the, the group of Barnabans went. And then there was also a relocation of um, Gilbertese communities from the Phoenix Islands to the Solomon Islands, but I haven't examined that in any detail. Just as a matter of interest, the proposed relocations that didn't happen included, uh, in the 1960s, a suggestion that the population of Nauru might like to come to an island off the Queensland coast on account of the devastation there that, that we were doing through phosphate mining. Um, so it's interesting, of course, to see how we are now utilising Nauru for other purposes. Um, other proposals were from um, people to move from Tuvalu to Tonga, and there was some small relocation of um, people from Tokelau to New Zealand. So what can we learn from these past experiences? What these examples tell us is that there are very deep intergenerational psychological consequences of planned relocation, which probably explain why, in the Pacific, relocation is really considered an option of last resort. Permanent relocation can have highly pragmatic and deeply spiritual ramifications for the concerned community. Relocation involves complex logistical considerations, as well as profound challenges and anxieties relating to identity, to social coherence and culture, and to self-determination. And in some cases, in fact, that, that's where those legal dimensions manifest in issues like self-determination, citizenship, social and cultural rights. In 2012, I visited both Rambi and Kiowa, so the two islands in Fiji with relocated communities. And while virtually everybody I spoke to on both those islands acknowledged that they were far better off in material terms uh, in Fiji, they had abundant food and water and access to much greater educational and employment opportunities. This didn't mean that they necessarily thought relocation had been a great success. Interestingly, the chief difference between those two cases, and which has actually had a real impact on their subsequent uh, development, is the degree of choice in moving. So the group from Tuvalu that settled in Kiowa tell their story as one of pioneering. Um, they talk about this pioneering spirit, this sense of unity, and the sense of community survival. They say that they have two homes, their new home, Kioa in Fiji, and their home back in Tuvalu. And many of them will describe themselves <coughs> as being both Fijian and Tuvaluan. Many of them still have land and relatives back home and have visited several times. And in fact, the local council helps to arrange visits for the young people. The community is well maintained and ordered, and people didn't really express any disquiet um, specifically in relation to their status as a relocated community. By contrast, the story of the Barnabans who moved because of phosphate mining is a story of injustice. Even though the Barnabans ultimately consented to the move, the degree to which they did so is unclear. Their story is about loss of homeland, deprivation of resources, 
and destruction of identity. And what's interesting is that the three are intertwined. Most of the people I spoke to have never been to Ocean Island or, or Barnaba. But they feel a very, very strong connection to that place. And I think at the heart, it's an issue about self-determination. Who gets to choose? Who gets to decide? Home is not just an emotional construct, but it incorporates land, rights, sovereignty and power and the ability to shape your own destiny. And a large part of that injustice comes from a loss of control over their own territory and resources. What's particularly interesting too is that the Barnabans in Fiji have um, unique entrenched rights in the constitution of Kiribati, where their homeland is, including rights of parliamentary representation in Kiribati, access to their uh, island there, and protection of their land rights there. And they also have special governance arrangements within Fiji. I don't think it's difficult to imagine how a similar story of injustice could develop if the population of small island states today were resettled without extensive prior consultation, negotiation and compensation. If groups are to be moved, then the rights of people who are affected have to be protected and the legal status of those people and the organisational structures of the group in the new home have to be planned meticulously. People who move also need to know that they're going to have the right to stay in the new country and have access to all the resources that any citizen of that country would have. For these reasons, the Nansen Initiative specific consultation recommended that any planned international relocation should, and I quote, define the legal status of the relocated community within the new state, help communities adapt to local customs and laws, include consultation with potential host communities, and contain measures to facilitate the diaspora community maintaining cultural ties, such as by allowing dual citizenship. If we approach planned relocation without an understanding of the past, then I think we'll end up with ill-attuned responses. If there is any single conclusion that can come from analysing these past movements, it's that the particular historical and political context of each one is fundamental to how relocation is pursued and perceived by the relocated community, by the host community, and by the community that's been left behind. Resettlement across borders has to include, but of course go beyond as well, the establishment of formal institutions like governance bodies and citizenship um, so that the group can maintain but also carve out uh, a new identity in the new environment. They also have to be able to uh, construct themselves as a group that has a dual identity with political and cultural relevance in both settings. Final point I'd like to make is that the examples I've been discussing have been assumed to be very rare. In fact, that's how I've portrayed them in, in my research up until now. But I'm currently in the early stages of research that situates the phenomenon of planned relocation within a much broader and, and longer um, history. And in fact, I'm reimagining the history of relocation and resettlement as an 18th century phenomenon which gained particular traction in the 19th and 20th centuries in response to concerns about a growing global population that couldn't be sustained unless it was redistributed across underutilised land. So this encompasses 18th and 19th century colonisation and settler colonialism, as well as population transfers and exchanges across Europe and Asia in the 20th century, and ambitious resettlement plans in the 1940s that were intended to distribute the world's people more equitably. The core premise was that if you could move people out of high density danger zones to low density areas, then you could use land more efficiently and you'd avoid conflict over uh, a lack of resources. So it's interesting, I think, to reflect upon this because we can see discussions we're having now about relocation both being a preemptive solution to anticipated overpopulation, as well as an answer to existing displacement. And the final point I'd leave you with is this. 
the political and the practical obstacles that stood in the way of relocation then remain. And I think we need to remember that resettlement is a very fraught and complex process that has really been considered successful by those who move. Thank you. Forced displacement as a result of development, and the dam developments in so China, and other examples mining and PNG, and so on. In situations where climate may be a factor from time to time, it's not going to be a predominant factor in terms of generating wood. In terms of how you conceptualise it, forced relocation, resettlement, and so on, do you, are you talking about separate sort of phenomena, or are you going to be sort of trying, or are you looking towards trying to? a legal and a policy framework that might incorporate both. Thank you uh, as well for your very good uh, presentations. My question might be, um, it was very nice to see the outline about the goal of the, the current goal of the Nansen Initiative being the protection agenda. Could you comment on what you saw of what your vision might be for that agenda once it has actually crystallized and emerged, sort of the post-2015-16 time? So as you pointed out, um, <laughs> Australia is on the uh, steering committee of the Nansen Initiative, so clearly has an interest. The question is, what, what is that interest? Uh, and I think it's interesting to reflect upon the comments made at the launch of the initiative in Geneva a couple of years ago, where the Australian view was very much, we want to help our neighbours stay at home. Now, you can interpret that as you will. Um, certainly, as, you know, we know that most Pacific Islanders don't want to go anywhere, but on the other hand, there is very strong recognition that, well, you know, we, we recognise we may need to. And I think that's where I think it's essential to look at what those groups themselves are asking for. And when it comes to the mobility question, it's about having opportunities to migrate, not to have to wait until it's too late and you, you're forced to go, not to try and say, can we relocate our whole country to an empty island somewhere, but to actually have um, opportunities to migrate with dignity. That's the, the line of the government here about. Similar perhaps to you know, in New Zealand. Um, yes, certainly now Australia gets bagged about a lot of its policies, like you say. But I mean, in Sydney, in terms of uh, the migration aspect, Australia's doing some great things. I mean, there's a trading initiatives up in the islands that Australia is pretty good for upskill Pacific people to enhance their mobility, to take to take advantage of um, um, economic opportunities abroad. Um, the Australian, uh, one of the things we were looking at in our studies was the potential role that seasonal worker programs could play in this regard. Um, the current settings around them, there's a lot of log jams in the way to make them. We have these things out there on the table, we need to rethink them and recalibrate them maybe. But Australia's got a seasonal worker program drawing on people from the Pacific Islands. It's starting to re-engage with uh, Pacific uh, Migration is a is a is a disinvestment of migration policy in a way in which has been absent for for a number of years. So um, Australia is beginning to do some things that I think are very helpful in this particular setting. Yeah, and Mike's question. Um, it's a really good question. We've we've held a number of meetings over the past year, which show a huge sort of. Know, that there's a big gap between the development actors and the humanitarian actors in terms of how you even describe relocation, resettlement, and what they involve. Because in the context of development projects, which have generally been um, spearheaded by the World Bank, you've got the carrot and the stick where you've got you know funding will be forthcoming if you do these things. And at the moment, there are concerns about a reduction in the, um, <coughs> in the sort of, um, standards that must be met. 
Um, so that's part of the issue is can we conceptualise in the same way or are they different? Yeah. Uh, maybe also something on, on the scope of uh, the uh, initiative, uh, a bit going beyond your, your question uh, regarding the relocations. We are focusing really on displacement population movements in the context of disasters caused or in the aftermath of natural hazards. Because we are very much looking at the cross-border aspects. Of course, uh, there is the mining, but there are also the industrial accidents. But there is not really evidence around that cross-border movements occur uh, uh, to a significant uh, degree. Uh, but I think uh, the work we're doing, particularly when it comes to framing the issues, to conceptualizing them, can uh, be important for other areas too. Uh, post uh, 15, after the agenda, we're, we're working away at two levels. Uh, the one level is what we call framing and feeding. Uh, feeding into ongoing processes. It's, it's a great time for us because so much is going on. Uh, there is uh, the um, post-Yogo uh, disaster risk reduction framework uh, that will be adopted in Sendai next uh, September, uh, next March, sorry. Right now uh, in Geneva, the uh, text is being negotiated. The very first draft that came out didn't really address uh, displacement uh, population issues. Uh, we did quite a lot of lobbying. Uh, the present draft is very good uh, in terms of um, reflecting what has come out of uh, our discussions. We'll see whether in the end uh, this will be accepted, but it would be important because um, what we need in a way is uh, not to wait till people are displaced across borders. We need a, a toolbox uh, that uh, includes uh, helping people uh, to, to avoid. So it's preventing displacement. And what we say is disaster risk reduction has to take into account population movements, such as, for instance, uh, internally relocating people out <coughs> of danger zones, as an example. We are uh, trying to uh, feed into uh, the uh, climate change negotiations. It will be important that something that is now in the Cancun Adaptation Framework in a non-binding way will become binding. The recognition that uh, displacement, uh, other forms of population movements are part of the climate change adaptation uh, challenges. Because if it's there, then governments will have access uh, to uh, climate adaptation funding. Then you have a basis to build all these aspects into climate change adaptation plans. Right now, uh, there is a process uh, starting that will lead up to the World Humanitarian Summit 2016 in Istanbul in March. And this is about basically the humanitarian response. I've uh, alluded to some problems and gaps there when it comes to mandates, when it comes to uh, cooperation mechanisms, again, funding mechanisms. And we very much hope that we can bring our messages to that table. So that's very practical. And it's always about having at the top level uh, the legal uh, frameworks which then help to um, implement those things at uh, uh, regional domestic levels and particularly to have access uh, to funding. Besides that, the key issue of who should be admitted and protected, there is still uh, looking at uh, what uh, the kind of <coughs> institutional home could be. Uh, that's a uh, rather tricky issue, and uh, I cannot tell you. It's, it's, it's a discussion that is uh, starting right now. When I'm saying uh, the home, then I'm talking about the uh, global level. A lot can be done at the uh, domestic level uh, in terms of domestic legislation, for instance, pro uh, for providing uh, for temporary protection for people uh, displaced by sudden onset disasters. A few countries have it. We have been uh, asked by uh, ministers of uh, immigration in uh, Central America and then Mexico, US, uh, Canada, it's the so-called Puebla process, to uh, prepare, facilitate a workshop where um, they uh, try to harmonize their approaches to temporary protection. Uh, there might be uh, activities in the following up to our Nairobi consultation on uh, the uh, African Refugee Convention, 
some participants had uh, suggested that um, either the uh, AU uh, court or uh, the African Union, the political level, would uh, do a broader uh, interpretation of that convention. In uh, Latin America, we are right now involved in the run-up to the um, meeting on uh, Cartagena plus 30. Cartagena Declaration 30 years ago introduced this broader notion for Central America. There's no way and no idea to expand that notion, so it's not about refugee law. Uh, but uh, the central governments are right now really pushing for an acknowledgement that cross-border movements and displacement in the context of disasters is something that should be uh, further discussed at the regional level and should be uh, put into uh, the action plan coming out of um, the uh, Cartagena Plus 30 uh, meeting in Brasilia beginning of uh, December. So it's quite a lot that is ongoing. And I think um, uh, post-2015, uh, post uh, our protection agenda, it, it really will be a package of different activities at different levels. What we're not going to push is the idea of a global uh, convention. Uh, not only because it would be difficult uh, politically, but uh, we come more and more to the conclusion it will not be adequate. It's very rich and it will be very difficult uh, to come up with adequate uh, solutions in one uh, document. Uh, so it's rather this kind of pragmatic approach with standard setting at domestic regional levels and then the broad agreements, non-binding, but uh, more the conceptual uh, agreements at the global level. We're at time, that's probably quite a nice place to finish. Anyway, this is obviously a discussion that's going to go on for some time, so thank you to all of you, particularly to our speakers, for being part of it today.